Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We have a special treat today. The beloved audio producers, the Kitchen Sisters, are joining us on the occasion of a huge milestone in their journey capturing the American experience. Their sonic archive is going to be preserved for all eternity, or close to it, at the Library of Congress. But it's not just the sounds. The Library of Congress will also take their storybooks and handwritten journals, correspondence, the materials that capture their remarkable creative collaboration over the decades. We'll play some of their beautiful stories and talk about their special connection to archives and our Bay Area. They're coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So there's a big difference between a library and an archive. Both are great. But libraries are community spaces where you go to check out materials. Archives, they're different. They're where the raw materials of history are safeguarded for the future. They're miniature arcs keeping the artifacts from the many weird presents so that when those become the past, people can see what life was. The Kitchen Sisters love libraries and archives so much that they made a series called Keepers, all about the people working to safeguard America's cultural heritage and the free flow of information And so it is only fitting that their work will come under the protection of the Library of Congress, one of the very best keeper institutions. Congratulations, and also a big welcome to Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's so great to be here with you. That it is. (laughs) So to mark this occasion, I want to play a cut of you, Davia, from a few years back when you were on the Society of American Archivists podcast. We're always imagining when we're recording that the Kitchen Sisters of the future will come along and take our material and turn it into the next generation of stories. So we always are slating our interviews at the top saying, you know, this is Davia Nelson of the Kitchen Sisters. I'm going to interview Mary Ruth Schuler Dieter on December 7th, 2017 for the story of the Pack Horse Librarians of Eastern Kentucky for the Keepers series. So that's at the top of every interview. We often have the voices of dead archivists and librarians, you know, woven into our stories because they slated those tapes for their library. So this is obviously something you've been thinking about for years. You've been planning for years. You've been slating your tapes for all this time. David, what's it feel like to actually have all those materials and those tapes and those interviews heading to the Library of Congress? 
Oh, it's so overwhelming, and it fills me with such joy because I've been uh, in our studios, which are in Francis Coppola's building here in San Francisco, uh, the Zoetrope building, and in Nikki's uh, commune in Santa Cruz. Neither of us have perfect archival conditions, to say the least, and so for some 30 years I've been watching our tape hopefully not rot. Now it's all digital, so it's I'm a little less fretting over that. But so the thought that this work will be preserved and will be accessible, the um, public domain aspect of it, that because so much of our work has been archival-based, so the thought that ours goes into that archival river and is flowing and available to people is just... Say the end of that sentence, Nikki. I don't <laughs> F- even... Fulfilling. Um, yeah. <laughs> Nikki, I wanted to ask you about talking to the Library of Congress. Like, what are those negotiations like? Like, do you just say, like, here's what we got? And they say, like, well, we'll take this, we'll take that. Or did you cut some kind of, like, I just, I can't even imagine what it must be like to negotiate that kind of deal. Well, it's been, it's been, um, thrilling actually but also anxiety producing just recently the uh, archivist from the library of congress came and he came to my house down here in santa cruz and up to the office and looked around and i was i was paralyzed thinking oh my gosh and he was so um open and optimistic and this looks wonderful this this is great we're so excited and i think they want um, they just want a sense of uh, the stories and the people we've, we've recorded, mm-hmm. but also a sense of the business. I mean, we've been in this business for 40 years um, and this collaboration and this friendship. And I think a lot of it is trying to capture that sense of um, a partnership and uh, two women in radio and podcasting and what that's been like. And they're so open and um, generous with saying, yes, please, we want all this minutia and all of these um, journals and uh, things we've gathered along the road uh, in our many years of uh, recording. Yeah. Davy, I mean, what kind of shape is this archive in? I mean, is it as tidy and comprehensive as I imagine, or is it kind of uh, sprawling in boxes? It's as tidy and comprehensive as you imagine. It's <laughs> just impeccable. No, it actually is. And I now I, I always thought our archive was slightly shambolic, but seeing it through the eyes of the Library of Congress and seeing it through the eyes of people who have come to assess our archive... They walk in and they are actually impressed. They have been complimentary. They have every single story in the beginning. All that this is a word we just learned last week when Jesse Hawking, the Library of Congress archivist, was here. Tangible media, they call it. All the dats and the cassettes and the reel to reels and the mini discs and anything you can hold, the reels of tape, anything you can hold in your hand. All those things are all in these. Um, Back in the day, that company hold everything. Now it's the container store, those plastic shoe boxes <laughs> that we have labeled with every name of every hidden kitchen story, every lost and found sound story, the every story in the Sonic Memorial Project. They all have their place where they've been sleeping for all those elements for all these, you know, 20 years, 30 years sometimes. You know, the earliest work goes back to 79 and 80. So uh, that's all the, in that tangible media. And then... 
um, Brandy Howell, who works with us, Nathan Dalton, and then the wonderful archivist Jessica Thompson here in the Bay Area have been doing um, a catalog of it. So it's also chronicled, and every piece is numbered and sequenced, and every series is accounted for. And But it's been acro- over the last, say, 10 years where we've begun to move in the direction of not just recording, but also realizing we better... Um, we better order it. We better ca- start cataloging as well. It's like once it was all just in our memories, and then it's just swelled beyond memory. It's funny, actually. I'm pretty sure that's better organized than like the FHA archives at the National Archives, <laughs> having been there and tried to find things. Um, I, you know, I have my own pretty strong opinion about this, Nikki. But what do you think is different about archival stuff, like those raw materials and the ephemera and oral histories and the kind of jumbled bits? that archivists curate and describe. You know, how's that different from history as it gets written in books? Oh, it you know, it it's so revealing. It has that breath. I mean, the first record, uh, home recorded record that sort of turned us on to this entire world of archival audio um, was this recorded letter from a woman to her husband during World War II. And uh, it was a disc that we found in my father's garage when we used to do a live radio show in Santa Cruz and we played a lot of jazz and my dad had a bunch of 78s that belonged to my mother and we went through this box and there was this home recorded disc. And all it said was to Louie, love Mrs. B, play this side first. And luckily we had a 78 player and we played it. And there she was, you know, in her kitchen, talking to her husband far away with all the anxiety in the pauses and her um, her longing for him. Emil you know? says, we'll ski in 43G, Lou, I hope so. Do they jitterbug over there, Louis? Stay out of those pubs and away from those barmaids. Oh, my God. You remember it word for word. <laughs> yes, we do. We quote it constantly. Um, and then at the end, she says, Maybe I'll sing something for you, Louie. And she sings, fish gotta swim, birds gotta fly. I gotta love one man till I die. Anyway, yeah, so it it captured. And we were doing um, some a a story about uh, life on the home front. And here she was. There she was. She appeared to us. So um, I think that it's so exciting right now what's happening with our uh, with audio is this way to transcribe audio so easily with these applications that you can just run the um, tape Mm -hmm. through uh, because they'll be searchable. And before this kind of material, this audio material was not searchable unless you listened. And now, hopefully, that opens up this whole new world for people to use audio in the same way that they've used print um, to record history. Yeah. Davia, who's another one of the most memorable voices? Not even necessarily what they said, but just like the timber of the voice and the way that the person sounded on the tape. Well, I'm just going back to the slate that you played at the beginning of the show, Mary Ruth Schuler Dieter. Mary, there were we were doing this story about the Pack Horse Librarians of Eastern Kentucky. These were during the Depression, and Eleanor Roosevelt in particular had gone to Eastern Kentucky. It was one of the poorest parts of the country. It was higher illiteracy than almost anywhere, almost no employment. The coal industry was going through a big transformation. And 
Eleanor Roosevelt and this WPA group started this thing program called the Pack Horse Librarians, and they were w- women had to bring their own horse or mule, and books were sent in from all over the country, and these women would go up the hollers and these riverbeds and steep mountain passes and get to people's individual houses and cabins and try and bring books into people's lives. Anyway, we were looking for a pack horse librarian to tell us the stories. And there turned out to be one last living woman, and her name was Mary Ruth Schuler Dieter. And it, it took us probably five months to find her. Every, every lead was dead. Every lead was cold. And I would call every single day for months on end. And then suddenly one day she was there. And she, Grill Marcus, when he heard the story, said, It was like listening to time. Her voice was like just listening to the history of time. And she was in her 90s. It turned out she had been this great civic leader where in the rest of her life she'd grown up very poor and gotten some money in the course of her life and had been supporting the community in deep ways. She She was pretty far into Alzheimer's when we found her. Finally, I got her on the phone, and she could not tell me where she was. And so we were trying to arrange the interview, but she couldn't say to me. She would she would describe. There's a road, there's a window, there's a tree. I mean, that was the directions. And I had a phone number, and I had already called it for months, and she'd only answered once. And so then began another like weeks and weeks of detective work to figure out where she was, and involving the city council and people, you know, calling the the. Um, Civic Center, trying to track her. Anyway, her voice. If I don't know if you we have it. have the cut. Okay. This is quite a cliffhanger you've set up, Davia, because we're going to hear the sound of time after the break. We're going to hear that cut. We're talking about the recent Library of Cong- Congress acquisition of the Archive of the Kitchen Sisters with the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, the Kitchen Sisters, about the Library of Congress acquiring their archive right before the break. Davia was telling us about an amazing interview that they did with a packhorse librarian named Mary Ruth Schuler Dieter. Let's listen in. 
My name is Mary Ruth Shooter Dieter. I'm 97 years old. We traveled on horses, riding down in the mountains of Kentucky. Very poor country. I was delivering books to the children. Pack Forest Librarian. That was one of the works of President Roosevelt. Our problem is to put to work three and one half million employable persons, men and women, who are now on the relief rolls. In the Depression, those horrible years after 1929, the Appalachians were hit so hard. Coal mines were being shut down. Lots of people in dire poverty. Eleanor Roosevelt decided to help create projects that would specifically benefit women and children. My name is Heather Henson, author of that book, Woman. Eleanor Roosevelt felt very strongly about the Pack Horse Library Project. If the women are willing to do things because it's going to help their neighbors, I think we'll win out. The Pack Horse Librarians, mostly women, rode circuits around 18 to 20 miles. They followed animal paths, fence lines. I'm Kathy Appelt. I co-wrote Down Cutshin Creek, the Pack Horse Librarians of Kentucky. They would stuff their saddlebags or a pillowcase with books and strike out by horseback or mule to provide library service to the remote areas of the Kentucky mountains. Going into the Appalachian Mountains of Kentucky was going back in time. No running water, no electricity, very few schools. Families lived way up in the mountains. A creek bed, that would be the road. We forded Greasy Creek, take the horses across. We wore boots and pants. Amazing. That was Mary Ruth Schuler Dieter, as well as the rest of the production from around the uh, Pack Horse Librarians. And we would love to hear some of your stories, listeners out there. What's been your favorite Kitchen Sister story? Or what's one story only you know or have been told about your family, about something in your life, which shouldn't be lost to history? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions, of course, to forum at kqed.org. I do want to talk a little bit about your Northern Californianess. Um, nowadays, Davia, you represent San Francisco, and Nikki, you're down in Santa Cruz. But what do you think of as your sort of your territory? Do you do you think of yourselves as Northern Californians, Californians, Bay Area people? Like, what what is it? Um, I will say I think of myself as a Californian because I grew up in L.A. And, and then went to UC Santa Cruz and lived in Santa Cruz for 10 years, which is where I met Nikki, and then have been here since the 80s. And so, and then, you know, love this state and all it holds. Um, so for me, but so that's our territory. And especially in the beginning, our territory was the Santa Cruz, San Benito and Monterey area. We, t- we were doing tri-county radio in our minds for <laughs> when we first began and had a live show on KUSP in Santa Cruz. But I got to say, I feel like our territory is the country. And then I feel our territory is South America because we've gone there a lot mm. to do stories. And 
Some days I feel our territory is Russia because we've gone there to do stories and Portugal and England and France. You know, we've been really blessed to have a big wide swath of the world as part of our as our beat. I mean, in part, it's because it seems like anytime you two turn over a rock, there's like global history underneath there. And one of the stories that this really hit me the hardest on is this incredible account you have of the development of rice Yes, rice the San Francisco treat. I want to listen to a little bit of your story on rice When I was young, we'd see these commercials for rice Every time we hear that jingle, my father would say, you know, your grandmother gave a rice recipe to the people who started that company. So every time you hear it, you can think of your grandmother. To be honest, we kind of thought, could that possibly be true, that this iconic American dish, could that actually be attributed to some recipe my Armenian grandmother gave to someone years ago? I still make peel off the way. This is Captanian taught me. The impact she had on me and my life, I only lived there four months, but it was four months that brought all these things together. Myself from Canada, Tommy, Italian, Mrs. Captanian, Armenian, all that converging in San Francisco in 1946. And out of that comes Rice Nikki, do you remember Mrs. Captanian? Well, and- I, I did not meet Mrs. Captanian, but I met Lois De Domenico, who tells that story. Yeah. And it, we were so astonished by this story. It was, it, we, we had been um, at an NPR event and we were uh, interviewing Michael Pollan uh, and, and we played a piece uh, about, the, about Fritos. And, uh, the <laughs> Fritos the chip. The birth of the Frito. <laughs> the birth of the Frito. And so we went back to the table after we'd been up on stage talking about the Frito and this woman leans over next to me and says, well, sometimes I'm called the mother of Ricerone. And I mean, with an opening line like that, how can you not go there? And this beautiful woman, um, Lois De Domenico, who uh, married into the rice, into the uh, into a Gold, Italian family, golden grain, golden grain, yes, golden grain Italian family in uh, San Francisco, began this story. And as she told it, she really brought forth this incredible. Um, revelation about the Armenian roots and Mrs. of Ricerone and um, Mrs. Captanian, who, um, whose harrowing story of escape from uh, Armenia was, uh, is part of that, uh, that particular piece. And um, it, it, it's kind of just this idea of listening and going kind of beyond the, the laugh of Ricerone, you know, like the birth of Ricerone, it seems like it could be a funny, lighthearted story. And it it turns out to be this real human, historical, meaningful uh, story of convergence and uh, of cultures and food. And um, yes, it's it, Mrs. Captanian's story is profound. Well, and just to stick with our archive theme, you also were able to track down her like rare book memoir, right? In like a German archive, describing day by day her walk out of Armenia and and away from danger with her children too, right? 
Yes, she was one of she was one of the only um, I kind of eyewitness reports books that were written like in the twenties uh, about her escape and um, her you know she left her children with other people and um, made her way and we found her grandchildren and once again it's it was kind of like a detective agency uh, ferreting out because she you know Mrs. Um, Lois de Dominico didn't really know what had happened to uh, Mrs. Captanian after she had moved in. They had moved in after World War II. She and her husband had moved into Mrs. Captanian's house in San Francisco because there was a housing shortage. And uh, they lived with her. And Mrs. Uh, Captanian taught her how to cook. And that's where she learned the recipe for um, what later became rice aroni. I, I love that her... Um, brother-in-law, when she would make uh, rice aroni for them, said, this would be good in a box. And thus begins fast food. Yes, that's right. Let's uh, bring in our first caller. Let's bring in CJ from Alameda. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, big fan of y'all's. I just wanted to say that I'm a little worried that the rich and vibrant uh, history of cable public access uh, in the Bay Area and nationally uh, will be lost. It was required by law uh, initially, is no longer. And just the diverse and wacky perspectives of people, you know, actually uh, getting on the air or on the cable. I mean, there was a uh, trans reverend for animals. There was a gay programming was distributed nationally. Uh, through these public access channels. There was a group called the Ohm Lovers who celebrated eroticism. I mean, it was like the Wild West in terms of cable, and I just hope that doesn't get lost. Do you think the Internet Archive might have, they are just chronicling everything and gathering everything, podcasts and websites, and they might be, I would look there, but I would also say, do you produce stories? Have you ever done any radio or Radio, no. Television? I ran the public access channel in San Francisco oh, in the late 70s. Good. Okay. So, we are I, poised to make that documentary. You are in the catbird seat. I've thought about it because people really wouldn't believe it, but it would be a lot of fun. It would be. And it's important. It's not, you know, they're just that, the people's voice. That's important. CJ, do you have like the tapes in your house or? Do you have your own archive that you've been maintaining? No, I don't, sadly. But there's still some people around who uh, I do believe have some information. I want to point out that the wonderful documentary Crip Camp Mm. was only made possible because there was a New York public access channel that went out there to videotape, and they found the tapes decades later in the basement of a bookstore across the nation. I mean, it's crazy. And that, so that tape is just the most compelling tape I think I've ever seen in my ever. life. Ever. Put out the word. We'll help you put out the word, CJ, if you're going to start searching. We'll, we'll oh my pr- prime your search with you. I would love to take you up on that. Yeah. Thank you. We can, put, we can put you in touch off the air for sure. Appreciate it. Thank uh, you. Hey, thank you, CJ. Um, I want to play another Bay Area cut. Um, this one is about Lenny Breedlove and the struggles that queer and trans people have faced, even here in San Francisco. I'm actually not sure it needs any setup. 
The only thing I would say was we produced this in collaboration with KQED as part of a series called The Making of, What People Make in the Bay Area and Why. And we... I was about to say the title, but maybe we're not. (laughs) Let's set it up. We'll we'll, we'll let it. We'll let it roll. He took the bomb. So you want me to go the fast way or the cute way? Can we go all the way down to the park? You don't want to go on Harrison? I like the ballpark way, just because it's pretty and if you don't mind. Okay. Got a drag? No, but I'm just trying to. Can we make it? Yeah. Okay. Hey, homemobiles, Lenny. Eight five nine Union. Yeah. Hey, could you text me that? One babe, one bag. Going to Espo. I will give it to the driver, and they'll be there in about ten minutes. I was having a hair appointment. I was getting my hair blown out at Dina's Glamorama. My friend said, "Lenny Breedlove has started Homobile. Call if you need a ride." And so I told them where I was, and I needed a car. They sent. I think it was Musty Chiffon. Yes, it was Musty Chiffon. She showed up and was my driver. So all of a sudden, this person who I'd known in clubs, we were driving in a car and talking with each other. They asked for a suggested donation. And of course, you just want to give them the entire contents of your pocketbook because they're so lovely. See what I tell you? Traffic. My name is Lenny Breedlove. I run Homobiles, a community ride service for the LGBT, IQQ, LMOPQRST community, and its allies in San Francisco. You do not have to be a big fat queer to get a ride from Homobiles, but it does help. No, just kidding. But, you know, you need to understand that the real reason that we are here is for people that don't get rides normally from anyone else. And so, if you're putting on all this padding, high heels, a wig, and three sets of false eyelashes, and a bunch of glitter. You are high priority at Homobiles. At first I was afraid, I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many... My name is Godiva Chocolatier. We're at the stud in San Francisco, and right now you're seeing me in my night drag. I'm wearing um, gold lame pants and a platinum wig and lots of fabulous makeup. At nighttime when I go out, and and this is how I look, you know, fabulous and avant-garde, not a cab will take me. God, I love that. Avant-garde. I mean, the thing that really shines out of this cut, and we were talking about it with all the producers yesterday, so much warmth, and you really seem to capture people speaking, you know, with their real voices, not their sort of like made-for-radio voice. Is that strategy? Is it tactics? Is it a hidden microphone? Like, what is the what is the way of getting people to talk that way? Um, there's a few tactics. Um, I think first, it's both Nikki and I are kind of bumblers, it just naturally. <laughs> I mean, we have some grace, but we also some the equipment is falling. You know, maybe our purse got caught in the drawer. You know, as you're closing it, there's just some time. There's a slightly off-kilter quality to both of us as we move through this world recording. And I think that helps instead of people feeling like they have to be so tickety-boo that, you know, you can just, you can be yourself. I think also we mic, and we don't put the mic in people's faces. We use a handheld mic, but the mic is below their mouth. It's not in their eye line, and it's off to the side. So they're not really seeing it the whole time. It's keeping it loose. And it's just conversational you know, and we just, it's its not turning yourself, it's not going stiff. 
it's staying loose. It's a, it's a, a, you're hitting a ball back and forth. It's a game. It's a, it's, there's rhythm to it too. And it's listening. I think listening to the person and not worrying about your next question. It's staying with the person. I think too, it's, it's time spent. I mean, spending the time and not being in a rush for a sound bite. And, um, and we sort of started our work doing oral histories and that's kind of always been the way we've approached, uh, our interviews. It's just long form. Um, I also like that you called them oral mysteries sometimes. <laughs> Lenny Breedlove is an oral mystery. Well, that also, I mean, we went on patrol on um, on Lenny's circuit for four or five times. I mean, there's that very first time, that opening interview is the very first time I stepped into the home mobile with Lenny. And, you know, you saw I was pissing Lenny off, <laughs> telling, telling the route I wanted versus what Linny knew was the better route. But it would just, you go back and you go back and you go back. And out of that, you'd kind of disappear as an interviewer. You're just hanging with somebody at a mm-hmm. certain point. Nikki, how were you guys able to do this as a business? Like, you know, <laughs> like, do you, I know you also did other jobs. You're a curator. Davey worked in like film casting. Is it possible to make the kind of radio that you make right now? possible for for other people for other people yes well I think so and I think that in a lot of ways podcasting has made that more available to people than it was in in our time I mean there there were limited um outlets when we were producing radio we did community radio uh we had a show you know once a week and that's kind of what launched us then we produced for NPR and uh the Cal you know California Public Radio and Smithsonian, all all sorts of other outlets over the years. But, you know, we've we've taught a lot of radio, too, at UC Berkeley, you know, the journalism school. And I used to feel really guilty about trying to push people into radio because there are so few, there were so few outlets. And now with podcasting, there is such a, you know, it's such a big playing field and so much so much more is going on and the equipment is so much more available mm-hmm. um and as affordable. far as and it's portable and the i mean and as far as um doing this kind of work money-wise it's i don't know it's it's a it's a difficult road no matter what but you it's do. the golden age go for it <laughs> don't hold back we're here talking with the kitchen sisters i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for more forum after the break Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. 
I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with the Kitchen Sisters about their work, which was recently acquired by the Library of Congress. It's going to sit in the archives there and be accessible to all of us. The Kitchen Sisters are, of course, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. And we do want to hear your stories. We're going to hear some in this uh, segment. What's a story only you know or have been told which shouldn't be lost to history? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, or of course the email is forum at kqed.org. Patty, for example, writes, I carry in my mind the memory of 10 years of conversations and observations as studio assistant for four of the original abstract expressionist painters. I've tried to write a book, but don't think I'll ever finish it. I would rather paint. But I've been told I'm an archive holding a unique history of art history that contradicts other cultural mimes. How much there is we don't know about how many hidden histories. Thank you, Kitchen Sisters, for all of the stories. KQED's Mary Franklin Harvin also tweets, The first time I heard the Kitchen Sisters was the first time I realized you could make cinema with sound instead of images. Grateful to have learned from these audio alchemists. Fans out there. And let's bring in Derek from San Jose into the show. Hey there. Hi, Derek. Um, my family history, which I'm actually probably the least qualified to be talking about, to be honest, is about my great-grandfather, Grant Merrill, who was a peach grower here in California. And it kind of is a special thing because most of us have left California, and I'm one of the few to come back. And, uh, you know, he was basically a, a scientist, really. He created a bunch of different varieties of peaches. One that's still very popular today is the O'Henry peach. And... Um, Another one of his peaches that was popular, not so much anymore, was the Elegant Lady, which he named after my great-grandmother. <laughs> and so, um, you know, when I was a kid, even, his peaches were still popular. Like 50%, I think, of the peaches that came out of California at that time were his varietals. And uh, it's just a neat family bit of history. And a lot of us have gone into STEM, and I kind of look at him as the pioneer of science in our family. And it's just a, a very neat bit of family history that I really love and is unique to California. I love that, Derek. That's a that is a very sweet bit of California history that I I didn't even know we grew peaches here. To be honest with you, um, we do peaches. California peaches are super famous. They're wonderful. Um, I highly recommend anyone get an O. Henry. Uh, they're they're fantastic peaches, especially if you like fuzzy peaches. And that <laughs> is uh, a bit of a, a double meaning on oral history. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for that, Derek. Really appreciate that call. Uh, we have another uh, fun uh, history. Nick in Fairfax, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a 30-year Fairfax resident, but my former neighbor, um, who died a couple of years ago, uh, was born on my street in 1924. They ranched on the street. He told me some wonderful stories. He was a World War II vet, and uh, when he grew up, they had a small ranch. They didn't make much money. And uh, if I have this right, here are a couple of quick stories. Um, they, he would go out with an older brother sometimes in the morning, or well, I'm sorry, in the evening, and they were dispatched to pick up salmon, uh, which they fished for with a pitchfork. They would go to the creeks and just get some salmon, maybe some frogs with a pitchfork. They only had um, a, a wood stove, and uh, to cut the wood, they took the wheel off the Model T, attached a belt and a saw, um, circular saw to it, and they would cut their firewood with the, 
the engine from the, the Model T. I thought that was pretty good. Um, he had a lot of really good stories. And what's interesting is that his father his, um, took his, his own father's, some of his recollections, and put them into a map, a sort of fairy tale map of Fairfax. But it was very accurate. And it was, it was traced over a, um, a parcel map. So it's fairly accurate. And it, copies of it are in the um, Marin County Public Library at uh, the California Room, as are two recorded audio histories that uh, Harold, my neighbor, recorded. So being a sort of a, a little bit of a Fairfax historian, I find all that rather interesting. Ah, oh, Nick, that's beautiful. That's also, uh, Davia is nodding her head here in the studio. I feel like that map is the artifact you would find where you'd go like, I need to know everything. It tells you small historic details like where there was um, there was a house of pleasure in Fairfax. It also shows when the railroad went through. And by the way, my neighbor uh, took the, the railroad, uh, the train, from Fairfax to Mill Valley to go to school. And um, the day he stopped taking the railroad to high school was, I believe, pretty close to the time that he uh, joined the Army and went to the Pacific. So it's a, just a very different life yeah. back then from what you would see in Fairfax now. Yeah. Well, I, what I love about this story is just this reminder to people. Most people have a cell phone, and your cell phone is a tape recorder. All you have to do is go into voice memo mode, and you can be taping your amazing neighbor who chopped wood with a Model T Ford. You know, um, you, you know that's... It, it, it's up to all of us to kind of keep our ear to the ground and just capture those small moments in time. And, and that map means so much. Those tapes mean so much. So thank you for that story. Yeah. Thanks so much. Nick. I'll never look at Fairfax the same way. <laughs> um, let's bring in one more caller, David from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Um, I want to um, sort of highlight how what the kitchen sisters do with so much curiosity and yet also very fine craft. It's all about listening to each other and being curious and open about everything in a kind of folklore way. And that's what a democratic culture really needs. I mean, they did a sonic memorial project for the World Trade Center, which instead of focusing on, you know, its grandeur, how it's perceived abroad or, um, you know, the things that led it to be an attack, it was about People getting married and the Mohawk iron workers uh, on the high steel and the weird marketing through friendly stewardesses. Um, and that project was recognized, um, you know, at a time of mourning, even though it seems in some ways kind of lighthearted uh, with a Peabody Award. And, you know, I don't necessarily value everything the Peabody people do, but it is a, a particularly special uh, manifestation of a democratic culture. And I think that the, between what the Kitchen Sisters do and other projects like StoryCorps do and, and even the ethos of, of Burning Man, there's, there's a way that democracy should do art, and they do it. Hey, thanks so much for that point, David. I, Nikki, do you want to talk about that, that, like how you see what you do as being related to sort of small-D democracy and you know, the, the protection of a certain kind of way of thinking about America and the good things that we can find in it. 
Oh, David, thank you for that beautiful um, account of the Sonic Memorial Project, which I, I think is a an il good illustration of this idea of um, bringing people to the table and, ask, and listening. Uh, with a lot of the projects that we've done over the years, we've opened up phone lines uh, at, at, on NPR and invited people to, just like you're doing now, to tell us their stories. And so many times it, that story blooms into an entire, you know, 30 minute hour long episode. Um, and it's, it's, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just very moved by uh, his description of, of that and how important that is right now. I mean, we're not listening and that there are so many stories even within the people that we don't like their politics and don't respect what they're saying. You know, these are human beings as well. Let's find it. We have to come to the table. We have to listen to each other's stories. We have to find some common ground. And I think that that's what projects like this and StoryCorps and, uh, you know, the, the work that Joe Richmond does and Jay Allison and other independent producers, uh, it, it really does bring people to the table yeah. and really tries to listen. And I think, you know, David also mentioned the Sonic Memorial Project uh, done around the World Trade Center area. And we actually have a, a beautiful cut from it. So I, I want to listen to this. This is going to be cut six. Uh, let's listen in. My name is Pete LaFleur, and I worked in the World Trade Center in 1969 and 70. I was a connector of steel. My mother's brother was a great iron worker. My grandfather worked on the Empire State Building. He worked in Brazil. He worked in France, San Francisco Bay Bridge. Weekends when they came home, you sat around the family and that's all they all talked about. It's all you heard, all your life. When you started working yourself, you could almost do the job because you, you were talking so much about it when you were a kid. My name is Randy Horn. I've been an iron worker for 33 years. The Trade Center was the most time I ever spent with my father, one-on-one. -on -one. I never really knew him. He was always away providing for his family. I learned to know him on the job. My father put me in the gang, start bolting up right away. I was on the North Tower. North Tower started first. I was a pusher, a foreman. It's like a band leader. What pieces go where, A, B, C, and so forth. I'll forget I was on that job, what? Uh, about 10 years, and I came back and put up the antenna. I had my son with me, and it was one of his first jobs. And up about three quarters of the way up the antenna, is a catwalk. So I get my son over there, he was, everything was all right. Everything was foggy. All of a sudden, a damn fog lift. And now, now he's looking down, he sees cars about this big. <laughs> I know one thing, that building on a good windy day, when you come off that thing, you feel like a drunken sailor. The height didn't even bother me at the time. I could go uh, 120 at the time. You think twice now when you're walking on the steel. Walking on the steel with the wind, if you get some gusses, it could throw you right off. And all of a sudden the wind uh, peaks up and uh, you just try to balance yourself. You would have to jump from the top of the beam and into the bottom of the beam and grab the top and hold on. They call it coon. You gotta coon it. All of a sudden the wind gets you, then you jump and you crouch down and you grab the, the flanges of the beam so you won't fall off. And when the wind dies down, you get back up and keep going. I was daring. 
and that's a daring job. Because when you're walking a girder, the wind is blowing, say, from the uh, north. Now you're leaning into it. All of a sudden the wind stops you keep on going. Could you imagine? You're in a new space in New York City. You're kind of in this air that nobody has ever been there before. That was a selection from the Kitchen Sisters World Trade Center Sonic Memorial Project. And, you know, David, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your approach to trying to take on these big issues. You know, this this is a project that's not exactly about 9-11, but it's also about 9-11. How, how do you conceive the Kitchen Sisters' approach to a topic like that? Well, the first thing I want to say is that that piece was produced by the Kitchen Sisters and Jamie York. Uh, That was a collaboration as the whole Sonic Memorial Project was a major epic nationwide collaboration. And that's a lot how we approach things, maybe because we're collaborating with each other, but we've always cast a wide net of not just us telling a story, but involving in that small d democratic way as much as possible, as many people as possible. It, we were had just done the Lost and Found Sound project, looking at how sound shaped history and history shaped sound at the turn of the century, at the millennium. And then 9-11 happened. And so we were attuned to how do you tell history through sound? How, you know, but as Mary Franklin said, you know, making the cinema of it. And so... We opened those phone lines. We asked people, "Did you have? Do you have any recordings from a hundred years of history at the World Trade uh, Towers neighborhood?" We were looking at that neighborhood of Lower Manhattan because we didn't want to only focus on those buildings. We wanted to talk about the life there, and we didn't want it only to be the last words of people on phone messages, even though those were coming mm-hmm. in too. And we, uh, Third Coast Radio um, Documentary Festival had just started, which is the big sort of Sundance of uh, audio. And we were with hundreds of our colleagues there at the festival right then. And we just said aloud, we're going to be in a room downstairs. Anyone who wants to work on this idea, I don't even know if we were calling it the Sonic Memorial yet. And all kinds of people, Jamie York being one of them, Jada Boomrad being another, Joe Richmond being another, all kinds of producers, this is back in 2001, came to us. We then opened those phone lines and we just started reading everything we possibly could. And we reached out to Verizon because we knew from doing the Lost and Found Sound Project that voicemails were a really powerful way to do oral histories with people. And we thought, okay, those buildings fell but the phone mail system might not have been in that literal building that often is run somewhere else. And finally, we called again, days and days and days, and finally we got through to Verizon, and we said, "Have are those phone messages there? Because you could get those back to all the families. You know, if you put some time into us, and we so we got involved with them in making cassette recordings for people of their family's phone messages, and then they also, different people would share those last recordings. And they weren't even the last recordings. Sometimes it was from earlier in the week where they said, can you grab me a tuna fish sandwich? I mean, it was the most quotidian, you know, stuff and the most But the voice was there. But the voice was there. And so all those things led up. And so it's sort of putting yourself in the center of a of an idea and of a place and just letting the ideas radiate out and saying to um, say everything out loud. That's one of our tenets, one of our commandments. You know, tell everyone what you're working on. People will start showing up. And 
Jay Allison collaborated on that with us. He was the curator, again, of that phone line. So it's, um, and we always know we're looking for music, and we always know we're looking for archival audio and field recordings. You know, you hear that, those old sounds of the Mohawk iron workers in there come from old archival audio, you know. So we're looking for all the ingredients to cook it. You know, Nikki, for people who are, you know, have their own tapes, Edward writes, what do we do with our own archives of taped interviews? How do we go about preserving them for the future and making them accessible to others? Well, funny you should ask. Um, we, the Kitchen Sisters, we received this grant from the um, National Endowment for the Humanities to, uh, for preservation. Um, and one of the things we're doing with this grant is offering a workshop, uh, which is on February 8th. And if you go to the Kitchen Sisters, to kitchensisters.org, uh, you can find out about this workshop. And it's free. <laughs> it's free. Jessica Thompson is uh, leading. She's a, a wonderful um, preservationist and engineer, and she's going to be sharing her experience. She's worked with us on our archive, and we're going to be talking a little bit about how we've approached that, um, saving not just um, digital material, which is really important to learn about, but also um, the tangible uh, material as well. So um, take a look at that if you'd like to find out more about what you can do. Um, there's just some easy, straightforward things. And uh, she's got some great tips. So I urge everybody to take a look and at that. And we will tweet that link to that presentation from uh, the forum Twitter. So if you want to check that out. I want to read one last comment from Carly. Archives can and should be community spaces. The work of the Kitchen Sisters demonstrates why. In my own work with archives, I encourage communities to see these raw materials of history as their own. Community-based archives are a significant part of the archival landscape. I just want to thank you from just my own self. Uh, the radio that you've done has been a huge influence on what we want to do with this show. And um, thanks for coming on. We've been talking about your acquisition of your materials by the Library of Congress with Davia Nelson, radio producer with the Kitchen Sisters, and Nikki Silva the other half of the Kitchen Sisters. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Thank Alexis. So great to be with you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.